grief is much more like waves. There are these massive waves very close together. And with time, they grow further apart. And sometimes you get beautiful calm seas. And sometimes after weeks, months, years, decades even, your back is turned and a massive rogue wave comes at you and just takes you down. That's grief. Hello and welcome to Grief, Gratitude and the Gray in Between podcast. This podcast is about exploring the grief that occurs at different times in our lives in which we have had major changes and transitions that literally shake us to the core and make us experience grief. I created this podcast for people to feel a little less hopeless and alone in their own grief process as they hear the stories of others who have had similar journeys. I'm Kendra Rinaldi, your host. Now, let's dive right into today's episode. Hello, and welcome to today's episode. Today, you will be listening to Rabbi Steve Leader, who is the senior rabbi of Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles. And he is the author of several books, and his most recent book being The Beauty of What Remains, How Our Greatest Fear Becomes Our Greatest Gift. And that's the book we will be talking about today. If you Google his name, you will be able to find lots of videos online. Uh, He's been on the Today Show with Hoda and Jenna. Uh, He's a regular there. Uh, He's also been in... um, Fox News, uh, Maria Shriver Sunday paper. So he is definitely somebody that people look for um, inspiration as well as for motivation and for knowledge. And you will get a lot of that today by listening in and hearing about his own experience witnessing people going through grief as a rabbi in his 30 plus years of experience, and then now uh, him living grief firsthand after the death of his dad. So please sit back and listen. And I would actually suggest you have pen and paper for this because he gives amazing, amazing tips and knowledge of not only how we can address our own mortality and prepare for our own death, really, Uh, but also just the way in how death can really help us evaluate and value how we live our lives. Thank you again, and be ready for this beautiful conversation. Welcome to today's episode. Today, I have the honor of having Rabbi Steve Leader. I was just telling (laughs) I told you, I told you I was going to mess up. I was saying, I was like, I'm going to say, when I see the word L-E-D-E-R, my Spanish language kicks in and I want to say leather instead of leader. And so I said, it's going to come up. And here it is. And just in the intro, I had already happened. But that is life, right? We roll with the it punches. Sounds, when it, it sounds good however you say it. Don't you worry. Uh, well, thank you. Well, we'll just, we'll pretend as if it's um, 
where I'm interviewing in Colombia, then I, I could I could pass with the leader <laughs> instead of leader. <laughs> Rabbi Leader, I'm so grateful that you're here and so honored to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm grateful that you're here. So we are here specifically to talk about your new book, The Beauty of What Remains, How Our Greatest Fear Becomes Our Greatest Gift. Just with the title itself, I was already like, oh my gosh, this is right up my alley. With the name of my podcast being Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between, I was like, okay, he thinks exactly like me about what grief is. So I am so honored for you to be able to share with our listeners of about you. Thank you, Kendra. I'm, I'm a fan of yours and I'm honored to be on the podcast with you. I really am. I'm grateful. So tell us a little bit about the journey. What led you to write this book? Because you've written other books before. Yeah. So what was the story behind writing this one? And it just launched January 5th. So it's very fresh off the press, people. Fresh off the press. So um, tell us what led you to write this book. I wrote this book. I think the, the best way to frame it is I wrote it as a kind of apology. Hmm. Let me explain. I was a rabbi for 30 years and uh, before I wrote this book at least started writing it. And during those 30 years, those three decades, I had literally helped more than a thousand families walk through the journey that we call death and loss and grief and mourning. And I thought I was doing a pretty good job, Kendra. You know, I would have given myself an A minus for sure. Mm -hmm. And then my father died after a 10 year journey through Alzheimer's disease. And my dad died. And that experience indicated to me, as I put it in the prologue of the book, everything <clears throat> I had been teaching and saying about death, loss, grief, mourning before my father died was just one degree shy of the deepest truth. Mm. And I wanted to write this book. I wrote this book to hopefully bring every reader down that one extra degree to the deepest truths of what death comes to teach us about life. Because my own personal experience, when I, the book really explores the tension between Steve Leader, the rabbi, having to learn to become Steve Leader, the son. Mm -hmm. And I learned so much about loss in that movement from Steve Leader, the rabbi to Steve Leader, the son. Mm. That was that extra one degree of truth. And, and so it caused me to reassess, relearn really what it's all about. And, and I'm happy to go through with you some of the things that I changed my view on and my teaching and feelings about uh, if you want to go there. So. I, absolutely, absolutely, and we uh, and I definitely I want to go into each one of those. But mm -hmm. you, what you said right there about uh, the Steve uh, Leader, the rabbi, to then the son, even just in the book, like you start off as sharing your story of why you became a rabbi, but you start off by getting to know you as it, the child, Steve. You know, I, I feel like mm -hmm. I got to know Steve Leader, the child, mm -hmm. Steve Leader, the one of how it is that you even 
you know, got into becoming a rabbi. Then you see the journey of you sharing all these different beautiful stories and so heartfelt and so heartwarming of, of being at the bedside of all these different families. And like you said, like you could feel like, oh, you're an expert. Like you've mm -hmm. been, you've seen death firsthand. Like, oh my gosh, you've sat through thousand deaths, you know, of people mm -hmm. in having to deal with families. And then you can see, I'm getting chills, you know, I'm here in the process, but yeah, uh, goosebumps. The, then you see, like you just said, that one degree that you mentioned, you can see mm -hmm. that in the book because you see that beautiful transformation into going into your own journey and your own experience and your very, very vulnerable and beautiful um, sharing. And I don't want to say too much about the book, to the readers, because I want to make sure you read it, but of that transformation of you as then sharing your perspective as the grieving son. And um, I can just say you did that beautifully in the book, for sure. You know, so yes. <laughs> you have no idea how gratifying it is to hear that, because the, the challenge of this book was to create a parallel narrative. Part of the book is a field guide a field guide to loss, death, grief, mourning, to help people who are, find themselves in it. And we all who have experienced know what the fog of death is and how lost you are. And so I, I wrote the book to be a kind of light in that darkness at the same time, for it also to be informed by my own exploration of that journey from rabbi to son and, and sometimes particularly in chapter four, where I talk about uh, an, an assisted suicide. Mm, that one was, yeah, that's that a, one uh, was very, because there you wore both. That's both right. Yeah. Oh, but there yeah. I, I, I hopefully fully explore, not resolve, but explore the tension between Rabbi Steve Leader and Steve Leader, the human being. Oh, and it was beautifully man. done. It was just so we can get done. into that too. But uh, the the reassessments I made, you know, that extra one degree, really fell into you know four or five really important areas, and that's kind of how the book is structured. Um, so shall we get into that? You tell yes, me. Yes, absolutely. Go ahead. Okay. And by the way, this is something that we can jump all over the place. And I think that that was another thing too that I realized with your book. It's not in a linear mode. It's not a linear book in terms of that, right. you know, you kind of jump into, you know, the different timelines. But as we know, firsthand, since we've experienced it, grief is not linear, you know, so therefore, right. this conversation right. is right. not going to be linear either. Just okay, so good, you know. <laughs> good, good. So, yeah, and I did kind of try to structure the book in waves, which is what I think grief is about. So I, that was you just perfect. mentioned, yeah. Kendra, you, you actually brought up the first thing I learned from my father's death which is, uh, as I put it in the book, anyone who thinks the shortest distance between two points is a straight line doesn't understand grief because grief is nonlinear. And uh, I, don't, I don't know how old you are. I'm 60. And I'm 45, my, I'm 45. I'm, okay, yeah. well then that's perfect because we have two generations here. So my yes. generation and yours, I believe, were done a terrible disservice by this idea brought into the world by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who, you know, did many, many amazing things, including getting people talking about the stages of death and stages of yeah. grief. However, and preparing for it, the people that were yes. dying, preparing for their own grief, uh -huh, for their yeah. own death. Mm -hmm. However, I 
think I, I don't agree with the concept of stages of grief because stages of grief implies first you feel A, then you feel B, then you feel C, then you feel D, and then yeah. you're done. And 100%. that's just not I agree. true. I, I agree. It is not agree. linear. <laughs> and, and it implies there's a wrong way to grieve. Yes. You know? And that's and also false. If you miss, the wrong way to right. grieve. Because if you miss a step, then you're like, wait a minute, but I'm not feeling that. Is there, yeah. is it so, is there right. something wrong with me that I, I'm not like cursing at God and mad Precisely. at God for this happening? Or like you're waiting, Precisely. you're awaiting, wait, wait, when is that stage going to happen? Because it hasn't that's happened right. yet. And yeah, yeah. yeah. And this, so this whole idea of stages to me is just nonsense. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's much more like waves. Grief is much more like waves. There are these massive waves very close together. And with time, they grow further apart. And sometimes you get beautiful, calm seas. And sometimes after weeks, months, years, decades even, mm -hmm. your back is turned and a massive rogue wave comes at you and just takes you down. That's grief. Yes. Now, now let's extend that wave metaphor yeah. a little what further. What do you do with what it? Are what are our options, right? Yes, okay, our options, so yeah. This we was know, the big living transfer. in California, and yeah. you're from California, you know yeah. the Pacific, you yeah. know the waves there. <laughs> right, and so that's, so that's actually that. the perfect setup. The old Steve leader, before my father died, whenever any kind of wave was coming at me, any kind of loss, any kind of challenge, my default setting was, I am going to stand up I'm going to face that wave coming at me bare chested, face first, and I'm going to stand here and take it because I am stronger than that wave. Mm. Now, when it comes to grief, we all know what happens when you adopt that posture. You end up turned upside down, thrashed, thrown against the rocks, gasping for air. The other choice when that wave is coming at you is to lie down, let it wash over you, and float with it until you can stand up again. Hmm. And that's what I learned. That's that one degree difference that makes all the difference for me when it comes to how to journey through grief. You've got to float with it. It's, so that's it's the so first beautiful. thing. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. The next thing, which is maybe too obvious to even say, but I think it's so fundamentally true for all of us who suffer a terrible loss. The next thing I learned is, you know, no matter how many times we say I love you, no matter how many times we hug and hold and are hugged by and held by the people we love, it's never enough. It's never enough. And that, that was a really important realization for me that I think only death really comes to teach us. You know, death is the great teacher. And mm. the, the next thing I learned, and this is a, a subtle, but I think really important and permission-giving point to those of us who grieve, is, is I learned about the duality of memory. You know, we, we give a false representation of memory in the wake of death, when we say things like, may his memory be a blessing, mm -hmm. or 
shall live on in your memories. Well, yes, and, right? Because there's a duality to memory. Yes, memory is beautiful. And it really, really hurts. Hurts. Mm -hmm. It's both. I, in the book, mm -hmm. I say it's like being caressed and spat on at the same mm -hmm. time. That's yeah, some people, some people don't even like to dream with their loved ones because of how much it can hurt. For for others, yeah. dreaming with their loved ones, even that is like, oh, they were in my dreams. So some are like, please don't show up because I don't both. know what to deal with those emotions. Yeah, so it's a, a duality. It's You're both. Right. And, and learning to live with that duality is the gray that you mm -hmm. talk about <laughs> that that's it right mm -hmm. so that's another thing i learned another thing i learned is authenticity and by that i mean we so often when we are approaching the dying or the grieving try to adopt a different persona than the one that's truly ours you know mm -hmm. so many so many people come to you when you're mourning with this they walk in the door with this sad, long, phony face, you know, a bad acting job and whispered <laughs> hushes. And, and he's like, who's sleeping? Wait, who's not, sleeping? What are, yeah, why yeah, are you whispering? And There's it's not what people need. What people need, what people want is for us to be with them in death who we were with them in life, because that is what assures them the bottom hasn't fallen out of the world, you know? So what you need to do is just show up and be authentic. If you're a hugger, hug. If you're a feeder, feed. You know, if you're a joker, joke. If you're a listener, listen. If you're a hand holder, hold, hold my hand. That's all. I just need you to be, as I face death, who you have been for me in life. That's comforting. That's hopeful. That's, That's real. Yeah. And people don't realize that. They think they're doing the right thing pretending. And they're not. So so this is more in this this particular uh, tip or learning is not only when you're at someone's bedside or like in the case of somebody that's about to die, be your mm -hmm. authentic self with them, mm -hmm. but it can also then play into how you are when somebody else is grieving as well how you are on the Absolutely. side of someone that has just lost a loved one. Yeah. So it applies on. That's right. Both. And frankly, yeah. and it's frankly more important because you're going to be with the survivor much longer than you're going to be with the person who is, who is dying. Mm -hmm. So it's even more important to be authentic. That's what people need. Okay. Just be yourself. You know, people call me often. I get calls that go something like this. Steve, my best friend from college was just diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He's got three to six months. I'm flying back to New York to visit him. What do I say? Mm -hmm. And my answer is always the same. Don't worry about what to say. I just want to share three words with you. And then I want to share two words with you. The first three words, just show up. Okay, just show up and then be real. And the rest mm -hmm. will unfold. It'll be yes. fine. So that's the, that's the beauty of, of showing up. You know, as I like to say, sometimes it changes nothing, but it means everything. It's it, really true. It is. it is so true. It's, it's not the what to say, like even now, and I, even now, I mean, I've experienced grief firsthand and I still don't even know sometimes what to say, right? When somebody, oh, you know, when I'm expressing, it's, 
It's like you never know. What do I say it, to somebody? It's such a right? good point. After 33 <laughs> plus years, more than half of my life of standing on front doorsteps before walking into a home to, to mm -hmm. meet with a family to prepare them for a funeral or standing in the in the hallway of the hospital outside the room before I go in, even after 33 plus years, I have no idea what I'm going to say. Mm -hmm. I just know that if I show up Love and this. I'm authentic, something beautiful will emerge. Yeah, it's so perfect. Because you're in alignment. I think that that's the key. Being in alignment with who we are in the face of all these different challenges allows us, and I'm going to use this word because you use it here in terms of vessel, of the body being a vessel, and therefore even just ourselves in life, when we're that vessel, then things just flow. And as long as we're being authentic, Mm -hmm. then it's kind of like a pure reed, like a flout, a flout. Up, right. You see, I'm here, my Spanglish. Yeah. I'm going to say flute. I was going to say flauta in Spanish. <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> like a reed, right? So the music for it to kind of flow, it just has to be clean. So as long as we're just present, we show up, then we're real, then things will just They'll emerge. be clear. They'll emerge That's and right. be clear. That is That's just right. beautiful. So now as... um. I, I want to talk a little bit about how did you then in the process of the 10 years with your dad, with Alzheimer's, what were some of the tools you used for your own grieving process in assimilating to that um, grief that was to come? It's like, you know, it's like anticipatory yeah. grief, basically, that you're dealing with in yeah. that in that kind of a, a situation. Well, here's the truth about Alzheimer's and dementia and, and other brain diseases. Uh, the people who have them die twice. Mm -hmm. My father died twice. Once when his brain turned him into a different person than my father. And then when his body died. And the disease, this, this might sound harsh, but I mean it to be comforting to people when I tell them, Kendra, the disease is in charge. The disease has its own rhythm and power, and it's going to carry you along, and it's going to prepare you, and it's going to wean you, mm. so that when the day comes, it will make its own kind of sense in a way it does not make sense today. Because the truth is, there comes a time when more is not better and when enough really is enough. And, uh, and I encourage people, I guess we can go back to this idea of floating with it, mm -hmm. to, to make peace with the fact and recognize and embrace even that the disease and its power and rhythm is in charge. And that's a kind of giving over of control and power and authority that I think is the beginning of embracing the lessons that death is coming to teach. I, for example, I didn't have a real conversation with my father for the last five years of his life. So I got used to living without being able to really talk to him, without being able to get his advice, uh, all, without calling him to tell him to tell him a joke, right? You learn to live without as these, as people diminish. The other thing I learned, which I want to share with, with everyone 
during that pretty much last five years of the 10 years of his Alzheimer's disease, and particularly the last year and a half or two, was I learned a new language with my father, which is the language of touch. I learned how important touch is, the, uh, how important and beautiful it was for me to just sit with him in his room, in that nursing home, in his wheelchair, sit by his side, and just hold his hand. You know, I hadn't held my father's hand since I was a small boy. That's and I would so sit for hours and just hold his hand. When I would scratch his head, it would make him smile. When I would <laughs> rub his shoulders, you know, it would make him sigh. We developed a, a new language, and it was very beautiful, and I'm very grateful for it. Oh, uh, and that never would have emerged, never would have emerged without him losing the ability, you know, to speak. Oh, that is just like so moving, and it's so true. It's mm. like we have all these other set and it's kind of even just now what COVID is kind of teaching us even now with the quarantine, right? All these different ways of, to be able to keep connected with people, yes, you know, yes, through this time, yeah. right? It's well, like we like had death. to find different languages. <laughs> like, like death, COVID is, a, is the challenge and lesson of essentialism. Mm -hmm. What really matters? And of course, you know, this is the other thing I really, you would think a rabbi would know this, but you know, we all lose our way. Yeah, and we're still Thank human. You. You're human. Yeah, You're a human yeah, too. <laughs> yeah, and I'm I'm busy and You're you know human, got a lot of responsibilities. Yeah, yeah I was actually going to say, which hats do you wear more yeah. often? Even like yeah. you have so many hats. Yeah, yeah, I wear them all at the same time, which is difficult. <laughs> it's a juggling act. Yeah, yeah, but I learned in a very deep way from the pandemic and before that, my father's death. Mm -hmm. That it's who we have, not what we have, that matters. Yes. And and the who we have is a very small handful of people that really matter. Mm -hmm. None of us have more than a small handful. And and you know, uh, just to to drive the point home further, I think about this particularly in cemeteries, and I'll tell you why. I obviously, obviously spend a lot of time in cemeteries. I was there four times this week. And oh, wow. one of the things that, that amazes me every time is the almost complete unanimity of inscriptions on headstones. They almost all say exactly the same thing. Because when you have to encapsulate or distill a person's life, down to 15 characters and four lines each, mm -hmm. you are engaged in an exercise of real emotional essentialism. Mm -hmm. So what do these headstones say? Not your net worth, not your zip code, not your <laughs> not grandchild's GPA, yeah. not the, not the car, car you drove, drove, right? Not if you lived in uh, Beverly Hills 90210 <laughs> zip code. Exactly, zip none code. of it. <laughs> None of it. Mm -hmm. What does it say? Loving wife, mother, grandmother, friend. Loving husband, father, grandfather, friend. That's it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is the essence and meaning of life itself. And, 
And that's a lesson that the pandemic, I think, has, dis and I'm not dismissing the pain and suffering for a moment. I wish it never arrived, but it has arrived. Now what? What do we make of these losses? Well, one of the things I hope we make of these losses is that, as I said, it is who, not what we have that matters, and the who is a very small circle. Mm -hmm. You touch upon so many, uh, right now when you were talking, it remind me a little bit even to of the, well, right now when you were talking about who we touch, you said something that made me cry in your book and is that you were hoping mm -hmm. that at least you'd impact three people in your life. No, was it yes. one of, was it a rabbi yes. that told, was it a friend? No. Yeah. Well, was he wasn't of, actually, it's interesting. So the story you're, you're hitting on is, is it okay right. for well, me to be sharing correct. anecdotes to people? It might say, totally. is it like, okay. I was like, I don't no, want to course. like say a punchline of the book. Of the book. No, no, <laughs> I am. I want to talk with you about what moved you in the book. That's important. Yeah, like that I was crying so, a bit too. In that this podcast. is a really interesting story. When I was graduating from rabbinical school, rabbinical school is a five-year program after you finish college. And then you go out and get your first job as a, as a young rabbi. I was 27 years old when I, when I started my first job. So I was a kid. And... I, when I was graduating, I went to three or four of my professors whom I really respected the most, and I asked each of them, and some of them were rabbis, some of them were not. I asked each of them, what in your opinion constitutes a successful rabbi? Because obviously I wanted to be a successful rabbi. And I got different answers. The most thoughtful and, and important answer I got was from my Hebrew literature professor who was not a rabbi, uh, Dr. Ezra Spicehandler, who has since died. And Dr. Spicehandler said to me, a successful rabbi is a person who deeply affects at least three people in the course of his rabbinate. Mm. And that taught me so much about, uh, as I put it in the book, based on a Yiddish expression, my father taught all five of his children. <laughs> I love it. A, uh, I yeah, a little, that's funny. yeah. A little there was is one, a lot. There were several funny. No, oh no, that was yeah. different. There was one a different one. I was one. There was another. Oh, Osmoskoptus gatus, right? That one. If you push, it goes. <laughs> no, something of a butt. Something of a butt. Of oh, a... oh, it's uh, yeah. Is better of the geshvira of the hidden, right? Which means it's better than a boil on your ass. Right? Yeah, that's what it is. That's what... And that one, by the way, even though I was laughing first, then I was crying because right. then it became a reality. So I was like, oh my that's gosh, right? How does he have me crying on what, laughing on one page, on one paragraph, and then the next paragraph I'm crying? So, so I love it. Sorry. It's, so go back to your yeah. your the first yet. So anyway. Uh, uh, Ezra, nice. Ezra Spice Handler mm -hmm. said, you know, basically what he was saying to me is a little is a lot. Mm -hmm. And, and if, if you can, if you can really change the lives of a, of a small number of people, you're a success. And I've never forgotten that because he wasn't teaching me to think small. He was teaching me to really care. Mm -hmm. And that just makes so much sense for anybody's life. Just the fact that if we impact one person's life, that's already a legacy there in itself. The fact that yes. something has been left behind that impacted that person, that then it's going to have an influence in their character and how they lead their lives, that then that continues on. And I, that's where I wanted to also talk about, well, I don't want to jump too yes. far. Well, yeah, let's jump to that part. And then we'll go back to this other part that I just thought the, about the aspect of the, um, 
the afterlife memory, the memory, that part, mm. I, oh, another one mm. in tears there. So mm. take us into, because you share your own letter of, that you wrote already to your children, but yeah. can you give us, please share with the audience these tips about how yeah. we can do that this in life, not about like what's in our will necessarily of who got what, but this um, right. afterlife memory, please. So what what you're referring to <clears throat> is something called an ethical will, which I talk about in the book. Mm-hmm. And so most people by a certain age have some kind of estate plan. They have some kind of, you know, uh, document that makes sure that their heirs inherit their material possessions, their, their money, uh, in, you know, after they die the things they're bequeathing to their loved ones. So Jews, since the 11th century, beginning in Germany and Italy and France, have created a second uh, complementary or parallel document called an ethical will. And an ethical will is a document that you write to your children and it bequeaths your values. It bequeaths the things the non-material things that you want your loved ones to hold in their hearts, in their minds, in their lives when you are gone. And I've written mine to my children uh, and, and I put it in the book. It's the first time it's ever been published, first time my kids saw it. Um, but I think it's extraordinarily important because You know, the truth is our children, our loved ones, if you don't have children, it can be your nieces and nephews. It can be your best friends. The people we leave behind, they're going to need our values much more than they're going to need our stuff. You know, there's there's a chapter in the book called Nobody Wants Your Crap. And it's really about (laughs) this mistake, right? There's Uh this mistake we make Uh spending our lives acquiring, 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 collecting and collecting and collecting. And what you discover when a loved one who's done that dies is nobody wants all that crap. You can't even give it away. So it's really the non-material that matters most. And an ethical will is a way to bequeath the non-material to the people we love. And, and that's that's so important. Now, so with important. that, with that, like for example, with your dad being that he was diagnosed, you know, ten years ago. Well, he passed away. Has it been two years already since his it's passing? Been, or it's been about two and a half. Two and a half. Two and a half years. So, had he, for example, been able to write an ethical will prior to him developing Alzheimer's? No. He had no. And you know, this yeah. is such an important point you're making. Another thing death comes to teach us is the truth of that statement. You never know. You never know when something is the last time, you know, no, no, no baby knows the last time it'll ever nurse from its mother's breast. You know, brothers never, never know when it's happening, when the water is draining out of the last bath they're ever going to take together. And I didn't know 
my last conversation with my father was my last conversation with my father. That he would be able to speak one day and unable to speak the next. My father didn't know that his last conversation was his last conversation with his son. And so I think this ethical will is is doubly important because you really never know. Mm-hmm. You want to hear the uh, last paragraph of mine? Should I read uh, it? <laughs> oh, no. Okay, let me just grab my tissue, box of tissues. Go ahead. It'll give, I it'll have give it. the listeners a sense. <laughs> yes, please do. So this is the last, just the last paragraph of my uh, ethical will to my kids, whose names are Aaron and Hannah. Be good and the rest works out. See the world with people you love. Cherish time. It matters so much more than things. Mine with you and mommy has made my life worth living. I wish for you that kind of love now. I wish for you that kind of love when I am gone. Say Kaddish and light a candle for me when I am gone. Feel its warmth and know I love you still, Dad. So beautiful. So now, how was it for them? Because they're grown, they're teen, are they teenagers or in their 20s? Oh, they're, no, they're, they're, they're millennials. 28 oh, oh. and 31. Oh, oh, really? I was looking at the picture yeah. on your website. They look so young. I was like, I thought they were like. Oh, that, that's an old their... picture. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Yeah. I was like, yeah. okay, they look in there. Does anyone pay attention to them? their websites anymore with Instagram? Who pays attention <laughs> to their website? <laughs> like, the website's so 90s, you know? <laughs> so dated. It's uh, so dated. Yeah. How, how was it yeah. for them uh, reading this part? How was it? And did you read my, it to them my son, public? Uh, I did. My son didn't have much to say about it. He, you know, he doesn't like thinking about his dad ever dying. Your mortality. It's that, that you, oh my gosh, we have to go back into that topic in a second. Go ahead. My, my daughter said, oh, daddy, that's so sweet. So that's how she felt about it. And Uh, she's generally more expressive, uh, than, than our son. Uh, but, but they were both, you know, let me put it this way. They did not give me the millennial eye roll that I get when I ask them to help me with my phone. <laughs> so, that was good. Maybe you can ask them, can you help me update the picture on my website where people think yeah, you're teaching? Yeah. I, okay. I'll, I'll get on I'm that. joking. I'm I'll joking. I'm joking. It's a beautiful family picture. It was just me. Like I was like, oh, they look so young. Um, yeah, no, they're I all wanted- grown up. No, plus it's so hard to take. I, I think any pictures I have of my children, my kids are 13 and 12. I mm-hmm. probably have not posted many pictures. I, maybe one a year that they let me kind of post. But when they were little, yeah. I have one like, you know, five pictures a day on there. No, so. they get very <laughs> tough on you as they get older. They don't, <laughs> my they kids, don't are, want my to. kids are like yeah, you have to. You have to talk to their agent. <laughs> it's like, no, talk yeah, to exactly. my agent. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I wanted to talk about that part when you said that he, he didn't say much. Uh, that aspect of the fact that it is so hard for us human beings to talk about our mortality. We talk about birth, we plan birth, we, we, you know, that aspect of, you know, 
people, you know, when we, yeah, when they're expecting a baby, all the plans that they make and talking about the birth plan, but we don't talk about our death. There's such taboo around it. And that the fact of us talking about it, or even the fact of you writing already this, that you're leaving behind, that there's this fear component of that. What, what would you say to this topic and how, um, yeah, what are your thoughts about this? The normalizing well, think, the conversation, let me put it that way. Uh, I think we should start really early. And by that, I mean, uh, I'm thinking of writing an article on children and death, and I'm going to call it Don't Flush the Fish. Yes. And what I mean by that is yes, we no, have all I... these opportunities, right? We have all these opportunities to start exposing children to grief and mm -hmm. to death and to loss that we deny them. Yes. Uh, and so we when deny ourselves, dies, not only them, but ourselves of well, that that's opportunity. Right. Of that's them. right. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Now, when the goldfish dies, some parents flush the fish while the kid's at school. They run out and get a new one and put it in the bowl. <laughs> And they pretend death didn't occur, right? Yep. What a wasted opportunity. You need to take that little, that little dead goldfish. You need to put it in a matchbox. You need to go out in the backyard. You need to dig a hole. You need to say some beautiful, nice things about that fish, how pretty it was, how it always finished its food, whatever you want to say, and mm -hmm. let your kids talk and then bury that goldfish and teach them how to face death right? As opposed to keeping death at arm's distance. Now we do this as a society. First of all, 80% of Americans say, I'm sorry, uh, most Americans, most people say they want to die at home. 80% of Americans do not die at home. And what happens when we die? A van shows up and whisks us away. And then we go to a mortuary where in many cases, not all, but in many cases, we put suits and ties and pretty dresses on the dead and we put makeup on the dead all to make them look less alive. Dead. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and we say things really stupid things to children like grandpa's sleeping, grandpa's mm -hmm. resting. Right. Oh, and then that now, makes people like, all, I'd be afraid of sleeping. Terrifying. I'd be afraid to fall asleep. Exactly. <laughs> It's a terrifying thing for kids then to go to sleep, of course. Yes. Uh, but it's also a like lie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a lie. We don't even use the right words. Grandpa's body has died. You know, yeah, his heart stopped, however you want to say it. So I think the answer to your question really ideally is to start very early and normalize this for people. Uh, and I also think that helping people with what we were saying earlier about showing up authentically. If you know that the job is just to show up authentically, it's a lot easier than if the job is to show up and pretend. So I think we also need to say more often and empower people more fully to just show up and be yourself because that's enough. In fact, that's a lot. That's all. It's way more than it. That's a thing. A lot of times people don't show up because they really do not know what to even do. And so they stop to even texting to check in on somebody or call them because they're like, I don't even know what I'd say. They're so right. uncomfortable around it. Instead of honestly, right. like I say, I do not. This is what I say. I do not say I do not know what to say right now. And I don't think that there's anything I could say that could make you feel better. Just know that I'm here. I, I'm here. Like, 
I'm here. I'm, I'm here. here. Whatever you I'll need, tell you something. How smart you are. The Navajo have a beautiful morning custom where if someone in the village dies, they go to the mourner's home. They walk in. They sit down. They stay a while. And then they leave. They say nothing. They're just physically there. Presence. The pre yeah. presence. That's and that enough. energy. Yeah, that is enough because just that that presence, you you feel it, you know that it's the you know, the words even just you know what, that actually just made me think of you holding your dad's hand right That's there. It. There were no That's words. It. You were just no. there. And that no. was enough. And there's nothing to say anyway. Yeah. What is there to say really? Mm -hmm. This is not really a time for words. It's a time for presence. Oh, so, so true. So beautiful. I, I could keep going and asking you all these other things, <laughs> but I know you have other, other, uh, another interview. I... Tell me, is there something that you want to leave with the listener, leave to the listeners? I do want to ask you actually, if you can share a little bit, one, how do people get your book? And again, the name uh -huh. is The Beauty of What Remains. How Our Greatest Fear Becomes Our Greatest Gift. I have put it also on my website and I'll put it on the link of the of this podcast and then uh, other ways in which people can get it if you want to share that. And then I want you to talk about the other book because the other book, the How Suffering Transforms Us, the yes, one I want to yes. also then, but that I think sounds like a perfect book for people to be reading also right now during this yes. time. So Thank you so much for that. It's generous of you. Um, the, the book again is called The Beauty of What Remains, How Our greatest fear becomes our greatest gift. And you can obviously get it on Amazon, your local bookstore. It's always nice to shop locally. You can follow me best, I would say, on Instagram. And it's at Steve underscore leader, L-E-D-E-R. So that's at Steve underscore leader, because I'm pretty engaged in, in Instagram. I, you're I with millennials because really you have millennial, you have millennial kids. You're, you're yeah, so and, not so nineties anymore. I know. I think, I think Instagram is just amazing. Uh, yeah. and uh, it's such a great way to communicate with people. So you can, uh, get to the book through the link in my bio. Uh, and I'm pretty easy to find if you just Google, you know, Steve leader or rabbi Steve leader, however you want to do it, you'll find me. I don't hide. Uh, and now the, the other thing is, uh, the book before this book, I would say sort of the part a to this part B is a book called, uh, more beautiful than before, how suffering transforms us. And, and it's a book about essentially, you know, we, we're running out of time. So I'm going to put it pretty simply. The thesis of that book is that we all sooner or later walk through hell. And there are many kinds of hell, Kendra, you know, there's the yeah, hell yeah, of yeah, death, I... there's the hell of grief, right? There's the hell of losing a kid. There's the hell of cancer. There's the hell of your marriage falling apart. There's the hell of losing your money. There's the hell of losing your reputation. There are many forms of hell. And that book is really about the fact that we all go through hell. And the point is not to come out empty handed. Mm. Don't come out of hell empty handed. Don't miss that. Don't allow miss that, that suffering. Yes. You know, Dostoevsky said his greatest fear was that his life would not be worthy of his suffering. Mm. That's such a powerful idea. Can you lead a life worthy of the suffering you have endured? Because then, even though you're broken, somehow you will be more whole. 
You'll lead a more beautiful and meaningful life as a result of the pain. And and that's really what what that book is about. Beautiful. I'm running to get that one too. Now that I've finished this this one, it's amazing. Thank you so much. It's just been an honor to now actually get to speak to somebody. I really did feel like I knew you already reading this. And so I'm like, I feel like I got to know your essence and your soul. You really did share that so beautifully here. And I just appreciate you so much for sharing now here with our listeners. So thank you so much, Rabbi Leader. Thank you, Kendra. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you for the really important and beautiful work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you again so much for choosing to listen today. I hope that you can take away a few nuggets from today's episode that can bring you comfort in your times of grief. If so, it would mean so much to me if you would rate and comment on this episode. And if you feel inspired in some way to share it with someone who may need to hear this, please do so. Also, if you or someone you know has a story of grief and gratitude that should be shared so that others can be inspired as well, please reach out to me. And thanks once again for tuning in to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. Have a beautiful day.